All right, guys, the main thing today is this, that faith that costs us nothing is worth nothing. Um, guys, I, I wrote this this morning on my Facebook page. I wrote this, a faith that costs us nothing is worth nothing. Our faith should cost us. Our faith should cost us opportunities. It should cost us friends. It should cost us temporary pleasures. It should cost us comforts. It should cost us time. It should cost us money. There should be things that you want to do. Hear this. There should be things that you want to do that you can't because of your faith. You're saying, well, wow, Dave, you're not making this seem very attractive. Well, it, really? I said, that's anything we value. Guys, when I played soccer, when I, I was younger, I played soccer all the time. I loved it. Uh, I, playing soccer cost me opportunities. Uh, it cost me friends. It cost me temporary pleasures. It cost me, cost me comforts. cost me money and time. Well, it cost my parents money. I appreciate that, Mom and Dad. Uh, there were things I wanted to do because I, that I couldn't do because I was playing soccer. We had tournaments and, and, and commitments and workouts and staying in shape. You had to, you had to sacrifice. And, and we, we, we did that because it was worth something to us, because we wanted to do it. And we did the same thing with our Christian faith. We sacrificed the things that we believe to be of lesser value because we're going after something of greater value. And that's our faith. Our faith should cost us. If it doesn't cost us, then it's worth nothing. All right? So um, I, I read this with some, uh, uh, some very, very, with a heavy heart. Uh, a Barna study came out a few years ago saying uh, it, it was called Six Reasons Young Adults Leave Churches. We have a lot of young adults in here. I'm really glad you all are here. I'm glad that we have lots of young people. I'm glad we have lots of older folks too. But uh, the two reasons that stuck out to me in this article seem to be very strange, but it makes a lot of sense. The reason number one is this, is that churches seem overprotective. He wrote this, George Bonner wrote this, one of the defining characteristics of teens and young adults today is their unprecedented access to ideas, worldviews, and the prodigious consumption of popular culture. As Christians, they express the desire for their faith in Christ to connect to the world they live in. However, much their experience in Christianity feels stifling, fear-based, and risk-averse. So inadvertently, the church has turned off an entire generation of people, not because the message of Christ is bad or unappealing. It's because we seem, that our, that we seem to be overprotective. We emphasize staying safe instead of taking risks. The reason number two is this, teens and 20-something experience of Christianity is shallow. A second reason the young people depart from church as young adults is that something is lacking in their experience of church. One-third said church is boring. One-quarter of these young adults say that faith is not relevant to my career or my interests, that the Bible is not taught clearly or often enough. Sadly, one-fifth of these young adults who attended a church as teenagers said that God seems to be missing from my experience of church. Now, this is, there's a reason for this. Um, uh, in, a, in, in America in the 90s, in the seeker-sensitive movement, people were worried about people not getting as fired up about their faith. And so they, they said, they, well, they meant well, but what they said is that we, Christianity is too tough. We, we've made it too hard for people, so what we need to do, we need to kind of water down everything so that people won't be turned off and they'll come to our churches more. Well, that was a colossal failure. By making Christianity easy, safe, with no cost to you, it actually emptied our churches because faith, which costs us nothing, is worth nothing. 
People, people know that. People know that if you're really going to go after something, it's going to cost you. And when the church said, hey, you don't really have to sacrifice anything to follow Jesus, people said, well, I'm out of here. Not worth anything. Faith is worth, I mean, even the church doesn't believe that faith is worth anything, so why would I? And that's where we found ourselves. Well, the Bible tells a very different story. The Bible tells a very different story. If you guys will turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 10 through 19, there's a guy named Saul of Tarsus, and he hates people like you and me. He hates us. He goes from door to door. He's got, your, he's got warrants for your arrest, and he drags you out in front of your family, drags your whole family, throws you in prison, and then he kills you, and he thinks he's doing it because God wants him to. That's who Saul of Tarsus is. Well, he's on, his, on the road to Damascus, a city called Damascus in Syria, and he's got all these warrants. He's got inside intel on the church. He knows their names. He knows where they live. And he's got a whole bunch of, of, of policemen that he's going to, and he's going to go wipe out the church in Damascus. That's what his mission was. All of a sudden, a blinding light from heaven sh shines in his eyes, blinds him. He falls to the ground, and Jesus speaks to him. All right, he has this conversion moment, Damascus Road experience. And then in Damascus, God approaches a guy named Ananias, says this, in, in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, Lord called him in a vision, Ananias, yes Lord, he answered. Lord said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So far so good. The problem is that Ananias knows who this Saul of Tarsus is, he's no dummy, and and. Ananias feels the need to explain things to God. And God doesn't know what Ananias knows, apparently. And he says this, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. In other words, God, I know something you don't. This guy has hurt your people. You didn't know that, but I know that. And I've got to straighten things out for you, God. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who has appeared to you on the road as you are coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, regained his strength. If you've been in church for a while, you know that the Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul, who's the greatest missionary, the greatest church planter, and wrote most of the New Testament. About, uh, he, that's the reason we have uh, the, the Bible. So guys, faith in the face of a great cost. There are two things that are going to keep you from doing what God tells you to do. We find them in the story of Ananias. The first thing is this. First objection is this. Don't you know who this person is? God calls you to go do something. He's given us instructions. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything we command, I've commanded you to do. God gives every one of us that command, and we argue with God like Ananias did. We say, don't you know who this person is? But Saul said, Saul said, I've heard the reports. I know what kind of person this is. And that attitude towards people is one of the biggest objections that people give for not stepping out in faith. I know what kind of person this is. I grew up with them. They're liars. They're cheats and manipulators. They're violent. Don't you know who, what kind of person this is, God? 
Well, I'm going to ask you all to do something radical. I'm going to ask you to ask God to allow you to see these people as he sees them. Not as you see them, as he sees them. Now, this is not to be naive. Far from it. Far from it. We are not to be naive. The Bible calls us to be shrewd as serpents as well as innocent as doves. We are, uh, we're not called to be victims. Uh, we're not called to see everything through rose-colored glasses. Yes, there are evil people in this world. It's about time we say it. Yes, there are. And we don't minimize that. Don't, don't forget, when God sees someone, he sees their sin too. Okay? He's not, he's not saying to be naive. And I, we have to admit that not everyone is a Saul of Tarsus, waiting, ready to become the Apostle Paul. Not everyone is. If you think they are, you haven't been in this world very long. So we don't approach this naively or it, with, with the desire to become victims. No. Not everyone is a Saul of Tarsus, but some are. God sends you to a person. The Bible tells us to be shrewd as serpents, yet innocent as doves. We see people as God sees them. We see their sin because God sees that, but we also see people as they could be. We see them as they were designed to be. We see their potential. We see what would happen if they were to be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, if they were to be filled with the Holy Spirit as Saul of Tarsus was. What could this person become if they met Jesus? That's the question we have to ask. And guys, when you are armed with that type of attitude, that type of view, then you will not object to what God has to say. You will be willing to step out in faith. My son and I, Sam, are in, in about 10 days. We're about to head over to India. I'm about to head over to India to go visit, uh, uh, to keep, keep the ministry going. Been going there since 2012. And let me tell you, that's a rough country. Since that time, seven, in the last seven years, India has moved from the 37th most difficult Christian, uh, country to be a Christian in to number 10. It's going the wrong way. And, and Christians in India are undergoing much, much, much persecution, much more than in 2012 when we started this. And if I walked into the, the, the nation of India seeing nothing but you know, persecutors and nothing but uh, people that are out to get us and everything like that, that would be wrong because there are people there that are ready to accept the gospel. They've just never heard it before. So that's the kind of view we have to have when we look at people. When God sends us to people, we see them as God sees them. That changes our attitude and our actions. The second, second thing that will keep us from doing what God wants us to do, this is the one I hear all the time. Don't you know what might happen? I mean, I guess what Ananias tells God. Don't you know what might happen? He's come here, God, to arrest me. I kind of like not being in jail. I kind of like being with my family. I kind of like being alive. He's here to arrest me and kill me, God. Don't you know what might happen? if I, I, mean, I like the fact that he's blind. I like the fact that he can't hurt your church now. I like, this, I like the things the way they are. I don't want him to see because what happens? If he can see again, then all of a sudden he takes the warrants and goes and kills all my friends. Don't you know what might happen, God? That's the second thing. Imagine God appearing to you today and saying, go to the house of David Kibler on Keeneland Court. Ask for a man from Afghanistan named Osama bin Laden, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen you come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. 
And you're like, uh, God, he's here to commit terror acts. He's here to hijack some planes and fly them into buildings. Don't you know what might happen? That's about what God was asking Ananias to do. And I've been told this many times by wonderful people concerned for my safety and health, uh, and I'm sure that you have too. Don't you know what might happen if you do what God wants you to do? Jesus asks us a different question, and I want you to hear this. Jesus asks this. Do you know what will happen if you don't? If you tell me no, do you know what will happen? There are two things that are going to happen to you, Christian. The two things. The first thing is this, is my work in this world will not be done. Right? Uh, I, the, the church has this really corrupted, corroded view of things, this theology. I don't know how it's sunk in to the church, but it's there. And it's not in the Bible anywhere. And it goes like this, that if I don't do what God wants me to do, there's a line of people lined up that he'll just go down and find someone else. There's a whole bunch of people that God could call to do this task, and if I say no, it'll just happen. I don't know why, how that got in there, but I firmly believe this, and I think I can make a case for this. I firmly believe this. Listen, I believe this. That if Ananias had said, no, I'm not going, don't you know what might happen? Do you know what, you know, you know what, what would happen? The apostle Paul would never have been, never have been. Saul of Tarsus would still be blind. He would still be at the house of Judas and Straight Street. We wouldn't have the Bible. We wouldn't have the mission work of Paul. Possibly every one of us would be a heathen because we would not have the gospel. That's what I believe. If Ananias had said no, there was not someone else, there was no plan B, there was no JV, there was no substitute that was going to go into play for, Apostle Paul, uh, for, for Ananias. There was only one. And, and, and I, you, we've all heard that, that you aren't important, God doesn't need you to fulfill his purposes, he's got a thousand other people if you don't. No, he doesn't. It's not in the Bible anywhere. There's never been a place in the Bible where God has said, I want you to do this, first said no, and he went and asked someone else. Never. It just didn't happen. I firmly believe this. God's work in the world will not be done if you say no. That's what I believe. The second thing is this, though. Look at the cost to your soul if you don't engage in what God wants you to do, if you don't step out in faith in the face of a huge cost. This, this, look at the cost to your soul. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this about us. He said, most men and women too, lead lives of quiet desperation. If we do not engage in the call, if we do not go where God wants us to go, this is what will happen. You will become a pew sitter. You'll become that complacent, lukewarm person the Bible is so harsh with. Look at the cost to your soul. We've all known people that have been pew sitters their whole lives, and they haven't done anything real bad. They just haven't done anything real good. They're just kind of there. And they meander through life, and they reach the end of their lives, and they look back, and they see nothing but regret because of all the things that God wanted them to do, and they just didn't do it. And they look back at a wasted life and a wasted faith where they could have really engaged and they could have really lived. But instead they chose comfort and disconnection 
and to be risk averse. And they never really lived. That's the cost. That's what Jesus says. If you don't engage, look what happens to you. And I have a, I have a feeling that that is not what God wants for you. That's not what God wants for you. And how the church has become that, I will never understand. Look at who makes the stories in the Bible. It isn't the people that said, eh, don't you know what might happen, God, I think. And God says, oh, you know, you're right. Let's just play it safe. No, that's not who makes the Bibles. That's not who makes history. And that's not who the church is built on. And the fact that the church has made the, the, the faith so risk-averse has turned an entire generation off because they want something to engage with, something to give meaning and purpose, and that which costs us nothing is worth nothing. Those are the two primary objections that I've seen uh, that people make when God tells them to do something that might, might cost them big time. Those are the two big objections. Don't you know who this person is? Don't you know what might happen? Well, God obliterates those two uh, things there. And these are the, these are the things that, I, that I, I, I want to I tell you. This will help motivate you to engage in your faith at, in the face of a big cost. Number one is that God sees things that you can't see. I love this. God has a different perspective than you. After all, he's God. He sees things you don't see. He has information you don't have. He sees the conversations behind you. He sees the, the, the things going on. He sees the future. He sees it all. Then you don't have that information. He makes a better decision than you do. Remember 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I rejected him. Talking about David's older brother. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right now, God is working in ways that you can't even fathom. And he simply calls you to go. That's it. Um, I, I was reading in a book that I highly recommend for all parents. It's called Why Christian Kids Rebel. It's one of the best books I've ever read. It's by Tim Kimmel. And the, the, he was writing a story about one of his teenage sons. He was about 17 years old. And he was volunteering in an inner city ministry where he was leading worship as a musician and everything like that. Well, Tim Keller and his wife were sitting at home. They got a phone call from the son. Every parent who has a kid that drives understands the urgency with which you answer that phone. He answered it. Someone was like, hey, Dad, um... How do I say this? Uh, the van's been stolen. He was in leading worship, and he had his team with him. And not only that, but he had one of his younger brothers, who's about 13. And, uh, and we, we parked it downtown, you know, outside the, the mission. And, and we came out, uh, the van was stolen. And, uh, and, and, the, and Tim Kelly said, well, are you all right? He said, yeah, yeah, we're fine. Matter of fact, we're sitting out here uh, on the street, and we've got everybody from the ministry out here, and we're praying for the person that stole it. We're praying that, 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 that they'll be okay. And uh, whose son are you? What? what? Um, because I know what happened if my van was stolen. I, I would, I would, my first thing would not be to pray for the person that stole it. And, and so he, he gets in the car and, get, and, and goes downtown, and, and um, right about then he gets a, he gets a, a call from a, a cell phone. It's the cops. He's wondering if your van had been stolen. 
and, uh, and, and the, the, you say, well, actually it has. You say, well, we just arrested two kids that were driving recklessly. One was 12 and one was 13. This is the fourth time they've stolen a car. And, and when they got there, the, the two kids were in the back of, a, of, of the police cruiser, and the cop told them that that wasn't actually the first person that stole. Um, the, the, it had been stolen by someone else who rifled through everything and left the doors open, and the kids found that, and they started. And so they got stolen twice that night. And the, uh, the son, when he saw the two kids in the back of the cruiser, 17 years old, went up there, asked the cops if he could speak to him. Cops said, yeah, rolled down the window and shared Jesus with him. Tim Keller was a pastor. He's like, wow, amazing. That's absolutely amazing. See, if my son had not volunteered in a dangerous spot of town, this wouldn't have happened. If he'd have been home playing it safe, wouldn't have had this opportunity to share his faith with two kids. They were children, 12 and 13 years old, a whole life ahead of them. And here's my 17-year-old son, without a thought of malice or revenge in his heart, sharing Jesus with two kids that stole his van. And he, th he thought to himself, children that are encouraged to see life as a great spiritual adventure don't have time for rebellion. God is doing things and he sees things that you don't see. But if we aren't faithful to his call, we'll never be in the situation where God can do things like that. And the second thing, that to, to, to the reason why we need to engage is not only God seeing things that you don't see, but second, that God wants you to experience victory in life. Did you know that? That God wants you to experience victory? He doesn't want you to live this complacent, numb, doldrum type of existence, but he wants you to experience victory. Hebrews eleven six 6 says this, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I tell you, one of the greatest risks I've ever taken in my life, and I, I will tell you this, I planned out this sermon series last year when I didn't know this was our 600th Sunday. I had no idea this was going to be our 600th Sunday. The calendar was set last year. It was being obedient to God's call to start this church. Let me set the stage for you. I had a good job where I was sort of at the top. I mean, as much as a youth minister could be, I was kind of at the top. I'd put nine years in a youth ministry. I'd land a specialized role as a high school minister. I, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, uh, I didn't have both junior high and high school ministry like most youth ministers do. I kind of been able to specialize and work with just one group um, at, a, at a large 1,000-member church, basically doing what I wanted to do, and I wasn't doing anything I didn't want to do. I mean, at age 33, that kind of job. It's amazing. The high school ministry was healthy and was doing well. We had great kids that, 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 that loved missions. and I mean, it was a good deal. It was a really, really good deal. I had health insurance. <laughs> that, that was nice. That was nice. Uh, retirement benefits. Pretty rare for any minister to have those, let alone a youth minister. I had it good, and I knew it. And then here comes God. 
saying, I want you to leave that. Along with your wife, your newborn son, preschool daughter, elementary school daughter to support, and I want you to start a church. You'll have no salary, no health insurance, no retirement, no benefits, no congregation, no support other than that which you can raise at a time when your country's in the worst recession since the Great Depression, 2008. You'll have no office space, no building, no nothing except this guy from Wisconsin and his best friend and his family who's moving down here to be on the team. Oh, by the way, 70% of church plants fail within the first two years, and the odds, against, so the odds are pretty much against us working. Oh, and this is three years after you've lost your son, your faith in me was shaken, and you don't really know if you can trust me to come through for you. Are you ready? That's the deal God laid in my heart, in my lap, in 2007, 2008. I felt like Ananias to a T. God, don't you know what might happen? Don't you know the risk? I mean, what if this doesn't fly? What if it crashes and burns? I get my family evicted from our house. Uh, I, I get the reputation as a minister that destroys churches. Can't hack it. A failure. What do I do then? This is all that ministry is all I know. I, I can't do anything else. There's a huge cost here. 600 Sundays later, you all, look around you. Get the faithfulness of God to us. Look how he's blessed us. Look where we are. Look who's sitting next to you. The wonderful people in this church. Look at the ministries that have happened. Look at the, the missions. Look at the, the children that have grown up in this church. And, and, and look at the, 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 the marriages that are here because you met at church. And look at the impact in places like India and Jamaica and Nepal and, and, and Honduras and uh, uh, Dominican Republic. Uh, everywhere that we send missionaries. Look, at the, look, at, look how faithful God has been when we step out in faith in the face of a huge cost. I'm not saying that, that there's a lot of talent here. What I'm saying here to testify to is the goodness of God on our 600th Sunday of consecutive worship. Look what he's done. Look what God does in response to our faith. You guys, he blesses and blesses. And the, hear, hear this, the greatest victories in your life aren't the ones that could have gone, that only could have gone well. The greatest stories, the greatest victories in your life are going to be the ones that could have gone really bad, but they went really good. Those are the kind of victories God wants you to have in life. The kind that could have gone either way, that uh, it, it, it could have ended very badly. True, those, those are the ones that we, list, we, we look at, we, the, the only ones that really matter. UK basketball team. Don't talk about the time they played Asbury University. My apologizes to any Asbury alum. They don't talk about the time they played Asbury University and was 100 to, 100 to 5 at halftime and the Talbot was playing point guard. Okay, That's not what they talk about. They talk about the games. They remember the games where it could have gone either way, where they're up against a big opponent and they could have lost badly, but they won well. Those are the ones that really stick in our minds. The same way your greatest victories in faith are going to be the ones that could have ended very badly. 
where you took a risk in the face of a huge cost in obedience to God's call in your life. Want to know why young people have trouble with the church? It's not the music. It's not. It's not the building. It's not the location. None of that has anything to do with anything. They just don't see very, very many Christians taking on faith in the face of a huge cost. That's it. Want to know why the fastest growing churches in the world aren't in America, but are in Iran? Did you know that? The fastest growing churches in the world are in Iran. Do you know why? Because the Christians there every day are, take, are engaging their faith in the face of a huge cost, and the people around them see that, and that is attractive. They see that their faith is caught. It was worth something to them because it cost them everything, and people are flocking to the churches in Iran to know about this Jesus that is worth sacrificing everything for. God wants his people to experience victory. But victory only comes through stepping out in faith and obedience to God's call. That's it. I'm going to invite the band to come on back up. We're going to continue our worship. Faith. In the face of a huge cost, you all. So here's the question. Which of those two excuses are you giving God right now? Because he is calling you to something. He is. Don't you know who this person is? Don't you know what might happen? Which of those excuses are you giving God right now? And the second question is this. Is that going to be good enough? Is it going to be good enough? You stand before God and he says, I had this huge thing for you, this huge victory for you. Well, God, didn't you know what might happen? Amen. <laughs> I ordered a pizza, and I'm hungry, because the preaching guys makes me hungry. So, hey, how you doing, man? I'm Dave. Awesome. Hey, um, what would you order me, a pepperoni? Your favorite, large pepperoni. Large pepperoni, awesome. Thank you. Hey, man, um... Just letting you know, we've been praying for you. We prayed. We've been praying all week long that God would send us the right person for this. And this is our 600th Sunday as a church. And we decided in celebration of God's goodness to us, we're going to give you this. This is for you. $646. Our, our church went uh, $46. Oh, yes. That's for you. That's for you. We, like I said, we have been praying. There, you are not here by coincidence. We have been praying specifically for you to be out. All the people God could have sent here this morning, you were it. You were on his mind this morning, and he wanted you to have a blessing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. God bless. Have a great rest of the day, brother. Yeah, you sit down if you want. <laughs> You're welcome. Have a great rest of the day, man. God bless. All right. Thank you all so much. Well done.